Yep, it's been a shocker in the Northern Hemisphere. More than a 1,000 wildfires blazing across Canada in the last week. Greece, of course, just experienced the largest fire ever recorded in the EU and hundreds of people still missing after the devastating fires on Maui. It's extremely nerve-wracking for us in Australia, watching on, knowing spring and summer are almost upon us. Up at the farm, I'm already dealing with, uh, with drought and we are scanning the horizons for the first signs of smoke. So uh, are we prepared for our own fire season? Two experts joined me now to discuss this. Greg Mullins is a former Fire and Rescue New South Wales Commissioner and a councillor on that splendid outfit, the Climate Council. He tried to warn the uh, Morrison government about the approaching bushfire catastrophe in the months leading up to the black summer, but to no avail. Stephen, Stephen Pine, is a fire historian and authority, as well as an emeritus professor at Arizona University. And you'll recall that we've spoken to Stephen on a number of times about the piracy, and I welcome you both. Stephen, given what's been happening in the Northern Hemisphere, we really have well and truly entered the age of fire, haven't we? Well, I think we've been in the fire age for a long time, but the last 100, 150 years, we've put it on afterburners, and we are in a runaway fire age. You know, I I go back to the old saying, um, hope for the best, plan for the worst. Um the fires are going to hit, are going to be amplified thanks to global warming, and they're going to hit primarily the places that are naturally fire prone and exaggerated and then eventually spread out from that. So, But I, I find it interesting in the Northern Hemisphere, um, I mean, the U.S. has had a very mild season except for a l- couple of places. I'm almost struck by the fire equivalent of heat domes. So it's not that fire comes to the same place and pounds it every time, but it moves around somewhat like these heat domes in susceptible places. And I I hope that Australia uh, finds itself outside, mostly outside one of those fire domes. Stephen, what's different? What's unusual about the fires we're witnessing in America, Europe, Canada? I think what, what we're seeing is, I mean, places that are naturally fire prone, we're seeing an exaggeration of it. Uh, so they're more intense, but they're also more extensive. Um, I mean, Canada is a very a large country, and it had fires from Nova Scotia, which hasn't had serious fires for a century, all the way up to the Northwest Territory, and they've continued. I mean, it's off the scale. They had 20 years of burning in one year. So it's not that we haven't seen anything like fires. The boreal forest is very much prone to burn, but it's really, it's really boomer bust. And we're seeing more consistent booms and more widespread booms. And the same is true in the Mediterranean. I mean, that's practically a dictionary definition of a fire prone climate, but adding sort of in feral landscapes, uh, adding in a failure to accommodate, uh, the fire threat that exists, um, suddenly they find themselves overwhelmed. Now, Stephen, we've seen urban fires starting to come back. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant on several counts. Uh, I I think one of them, uh, well, it's significant because 
you're killing people and you're destroying a lot of urban uh, communities. And this was something that we thought, at least in developed countries like the U.S., didn't happen anymore. You may pick off a few houses or exurbs uh, in here and there, but a major city, um, no. And that is be, that is becoming routine now. So I look at it as a kind of fire historian. It's like watching polio come back. We fix this problem. There's no reason for cities to burn. We know how how to fix it. But in some ways, I think we've misdefined the problem, and we think it's a wildland fire problem. The fire may or may not originate in the wildland, but it tends to originate very close to it. And then it's running into the cities as an urban conflagration. And that is something we haven't thought about. We thought this is a problem that had gone away. Now, now it's back with us, seriously. Stephen, you mentioned global warming as a sort of accelerant, but uh, do, does this phenomenon predate it? Yes, it does. Uh, certainly, at least in the U.S., I, I think it was really announced for the first time around 1991 in a big way when Oakland, California burned. Um, and this could not be attributed to climate change. This was a fact of how people had designed cities, how we lived in it, how we had organized that landscape. Uh, in many ways, you can't blame fossil fuels for affecting the atmosphere and driving those fires, but you can blame it for creating a certain kind of society and the way people live on the land and manage that land. And that is a common underpinning for these urban conflagrations that we're seeing. And it should strike us, it strikes me as a paradox that these large mega fires and really disastrous fires running into communities are mostly affecting developed countries. Greg, how have you been feeling watching the fires in the Northern Hemisphere? Look, um, great trepidation. Um, and so I, I thought it was over surprise, but um, when I saw the fire in Maui, I've, I was actually in Lahaina oh, probably eight years ago and on holiday with my wife, and she'll tell you the story of me following fire engines to watch them put out a scrub fire. Um, so I really know how to show her a good time when on holiday. But um, <laughs> I, I never would have imagined... But you don't hold the hose, feel. do you, Greg? Well, I do. I'm a volunteer firefighter and uh, I've <laughs> actually was at a small fire on the weekend, but um, I still hold a hose. Okay, <laughs> even, so... You... Even when holidaying in uh, Hawaii. So what do you think we can expect for our coming fire season on a scale of 1 to 10, Greg? Look, to be honest, I can't call it. It's where we've had three years of very wet weather with La Nina. Now, that's a double-edged sword. It's prevented us from carrying out hazard reduction burning. And this year in New South Wales alone, we're only up to 20% of the target, but we've got three years of targets that we've missed totally. So there's a lot of fuel out there. The warm, warmish weather and heavy rains has led to prolific growth. And as you said earlier, Philip, um, drought is kicking in in places like the, the Lower Hunter, places around Dungog, for example. We're getting fires already. Um, one to 10. I'm... I'm sort of on a seven. Uh, the Bureau of Meteorology is saying a warmer, drier spring. What worries me is summer. What's summer going to look like? So well, you, the, you, d you describe the country as being a powder keg. 
Yes. Um, now, why I say that, a triple La Nina is a very rare event. We had one in the 1950s, the 70s, the 90s, and this last one. So only four recorded. The immediate year following each triple La Nina, we've had major bushfires on the east coast of New South Wales and in other states. So 1957, the township of Lura in the Blue Mountains was basically obliterated, um, about 150, 160 buildings destroyed. Um, December 1977, after that triple La Nina, uh, the Blue Mountains went up again, 49 homes. I, I fought those fires. And then the Black Christmas fires of 2001, 2002, um, 109 homes burnt down. So not our worst fire seasons, but certainly swings immediately back to warm and dry, usually with an El Nino in tow, um, which we're still waiting to see if that does kick in here. But we don't need it anymore. Uh, Stephen spoke about global warming. When I was a young firefighter learning at the knee of my father, who was a volunteer firefighter for 60 years, the years with El Nino were the ones you really worried about. But since the early 2000s, you haven't needed that on the East Coast for a very bad fire season because it's so much warmer. And that extra energy in the global weather systems means you get stronger winds, drier conditions. And if you get El Nino, who knows what's going to happen? So, yeah, a lot of trepidation. Um, and looking at Maui, there was talk of flash droughts, which, as Stephen would tell you, wasn't even recognised in the literature until the year 2000. But heat waves, heat domes, very hot, dry weather, drying vegetation out very quickly, setting it up for fire. That could absolutely happen this summer. At my farm in the Upper Hunter, we're very worried about uh, grass fires, but uh, fully-fledged bushfires, of course, as well. But it's important to remember, and it's a point you make, Greg, that 80% of New South Wales forests didn't burn during black summer, which means they could burn this time big time. Yes, and the complicating factor, I heard you talking about urban fires with Stephen, um, the areas that didn't burn during black summer in New South Wales were the areas where we traditionally lose the most homes. So Newcastle, Wollongong, the Central Coast, Sydney, uh, Lower Blue Mountains. So they're the areas that weren't really touched by the black summer fires. We've had virtually no hazard reduction burning and we've had prolific growth. Um, look, you talked about grass fires. So the other factor after a triple La Nina is usually we have massive grass fires. And we're seeing in the Northern Territory at the moment, my phone a little while ago dropped out because the fire chief from the Northern Territory was ringing me um, to give me a bit of an update what's happening up there. But they're battling grass fires across the Territory. In 1975, we had Australia's largest fires ever, 117 million hectares or 15% of Australia burned over many months following or during a triple La Nina because of that massive growth. And in as we go into summer, South Australia and Victoria in particular will be areas to watch as we get to February, which is their worst time for fires. Greg, do you agree with uh, Stephen that the wild card here is, yes, climate change? Oh, look... <laughs> So I've been fighting fires for 52 years. 
we'd we'd have bad years in New South Wales every about once a decade. There were there were patterns, and those patterns went out the window in the late nineties. Things sped up. Now, just to give you an indication, the Blue Mountains, which west of Sydney, well known internationally as a fire hotspot. It was about once a decade. We had fires in 1944, 1957, 68, 77, 94. And then it sped up 2001, 2006, 2013, 2019. Now, our bad fire seasons are coming quick and fast because of the warming influence. When they come after the Black Saturday fires in Victoria that killed 173 people in 2009, we had to change our fire danger rating system nationally to bring in catastrophic because we'd always thought fires are survivable. We encouraged people to stay and defend their properties. We didn't like evacuating people because of all the complexities that would bring to a fire. But we just had to say almost game over after watching Canberra in 2003, Victoria in 2009. On the worst days when you get off the scale fire weather, like we've never had before, everyone needs to get out. Stephen, back to you. Would you say a lack of preparedness or poor fire policies have been a a contributing problem in uh, America, Canada, Europe? I think part of the, yeah, I think part of the issue is that we consider fire as something, it's an emergency response. It's something that happens seasonally. It happens more in some years than in others. It is not something you systematically plan for. In fact, fire needs to be thought of systemically. In some ways, it needs our our whole attitude towards it seems to be needs to be normalized. And instead of reacting to it, we need to get much more serious about preparation. And that that requires you know rethinking a lot of how we live on the land. Uh, it's not just you know, making sure your pumps are working or you've got uh, helicopters or whatever. Uh, it's also, what does the landscape look like in terms of fire? Um, how are your structures um, going to hold up against uh, an ember storm? How do you how do you muster a response uh, when you need it? Uh, can we continue to rely on volunteers uh, to the same extent? This is all, it's not just, well, we increase our capacity to respond in an emergency, whether it's to fight a fire or to light one. And instead, it has got to be much more part of the normal uh, composition of how we now live. Greg, federal and state uh, local governments have invested a, a fair bit of money into emergency services. So are we better prepared? Well, look, the, the answer to that, is a resounding yes, but exactly as Stephen said, that's just the response phase. Now, there's a whole question about are our homes built to withstand fire? Some of the more modern ones are built to Australian Standard 3959, that's fine, but it's undercooked. We know from Black Summer that the fire danger indexes that our homes are constructed to are less than what was experienced. So during those fires in areas where we hadn't lost many homes before. So um, getting ready, the preparation for the season, but then at the other end, the recovery services, there's Mm -hmm. people still living in tents who went through fires and floods in the following years. And 
you know, it used to be once a decade event. We now have compounding consecutive disasters. And it's just like being in the surf. You get dumped by one wave, you stand up, you're dumped by another one until you can't get up again. And it's um, this is what's happening worldwide. And so there needs to be a productivity commission some years ago found that only 3% of disaster spending is prior to the event. 97% is trying to clean up afterwards. And that has to shift. And look, the federal government are looking at that. They have put more money in, but it's going to be a multi-billion dollar fix, not a million dollar fix. And my group, Emergency Leaders for Climate Action, have been listened to by the federal government now compared to back before the fires. So there's lots of good dialogue going on, but it's a total reset, getting ready before the event, hardening and building resilient communities that can take a hit and then bounce back. Stephen, any hope of uh, reversing or even slowing down the pyrocene? Well, the pyrocene is our invention. And so, uh, yes, it's under our control if we choose to. And there there are a number of things we can do. We we have to protect our our critical assets, our our lives and cities, uh, municipal watersheds, sequoia groves, uh, we also need to get the landscape, surrounding landscape, in better shape, not just for fire, but for all general ecological health. And we need to start to, to shut down as soon as possible um, burning fossil fuels. And we need to do all of those at the same time. And all of those are possible. And I, speaking specifically for the United States, a lot of the things that are really problematic in terms of uh, these urban conflagrations uh, we think of it as a fire problem, but they are really problems with how we distribute electricity, uh, which power lines are causing so many. There are problems with how we manage our rural landscape, with how and where we build our houses and what we build them out of. In other words, these are fire is integrated with lots of other things. So we don't need a fire-specific program. We We can attach fire to a lot of other stuff that we ought to be doing anyway. Greg, we've recently started to recognise and incorporate Indigenous fire management in Australia. Do you think uh, more needs to be done? Look, absolutely, Philip. And the bottom line is where I live in Sydney's northern beaches, the national parks are full of scrub. Um, photographic evidence from, you know, over a century ago shows it was like parkland and some of the journals of the explorers said, you know, the bush around Sydney, it wasn't thick scrub, it was open country that you could ride through on your horses. And that was because people who lived here for 60,000 years, at least before us, managed the land for various reasons. And they're in tune with the land. It was incredibly sophisticated. It's still carried out in some parts of Australia, but unfortunately where Indigenous people were displaced or around Sydney, a lot of them suffered from smallpox, the communities decimated and um, and we know about the Australia wars that we all try to deny um, as this debate about yes or no, which has to be a resounding yes. Um, but it, that part of that yes is please help us. Um, we won't, what a lot of Indigenous fire experts I've spoken to are worried that, well, look, you white fellas have stuffed it up for the last 200 years bringing a European mindset to fire here, that it's the enemy put everything out, um, stopped us doing what we used to do. And 
we're supposed to come and fix it up for you in a couple of years. Well, that won't happen. But we must work with our Indigenous brothers and sisters, learn from them and facilitate them bringing back that knowledge. Stephen, uh, are you seeing Indigenous fire management in the US and Canada? Yes, we are, and it's becoming a very active theme and a point of research. And I would actually expand that beyond Indigenous to include traditional, because a lot of uh, Europe's problems uh, are, are the result of the loss of traditional land practices and the fire knowledge that went with it. So there it's not an Indigenous question, it's a traditional knowledge question. But what I find, one of the things I find fascinating about it is the tendency, both in the U.S. and and in Australia to dichotomize the debate, do you burn or not burn, et cetera, et cetera. And the cultural burning issue introduces a third party into it, which in a sense destabilizes that old discussion in what I think is healthy ways. So we begin discussing what is the right mix to go on here rather than one or the other. Suddenly it becomes a negotiated issue, which I regard as very healthy and necessary. Gentlemen, thank you. My guests... Greg Mullins, former Fire and Rescue New South Wales Commissioner and a Councillor of the Climate Council, and Stephen Pine. Our old friend is a fire historian and author and an Emeritus Professor at Arizona University. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.